Let me tell you a little something about this Jesus who is God in the form of man. There was a time when he and John, the one who baptized, the, the one who immersed, there was a time when their ministries just for a few months overlapped. We don't know for how many months, maybe about six months. And it was a beautiful thing, as you might imagine. They were in a province in Israel called Judea. Both were involved in ministry and baptizing at the same time, but in different parts of that particular province. Now, you would think that would be a blessed thing and not a difficult thing, but there was competition that arose. It was particularly John's followers, his disciples, who were threatened by this rabbi Jesus who was getting a larger following than John was. In fact, they came to John one time, they complained, and they said, this Jesus, this Jesus, you know, the one who you have testified of and spoken of in such a commendable way, many more people are coming to him than to you. And John was quite distressed that they would juxtapose this Jesus as a competitor next to him. And John, remember, John said, I, I must decrease, he must increase. Well, anyway, there was a real, real problem, and uh, the Lord knew about this, and so he did what we're about to read now. It's in John chapter uh, 4, beginning in verse 1. So you know the situation. There was some competition, some conflict going on, and uh, so now what we read will make some sense to you. We'll see the Lord's response to this friction. John chapter uh, 4, verse 1. Therefore, that is to say, in light of the circumstances. Therefore, uh, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that he, Jesus, was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although, this is a kind of a parenthetical note, notice in verse 2, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he, Jesus, left Judea and went again, he had been there previously, so he went again into Galilee. Let me pause just for a second and address the question, why was it that Jesus was not actually baptizing? He was supervising and overseeing the baptism of many, but he himself, we have no record of him, we have a record of him teaching and preaching and healing and doing all the rest, but not baptizing. I don't know what the reason is, this is just speculation, I'm just wondering if folks in the day uh, who were perhaps baptized by Jesus might miss the whole point and use it inappropriately as a badge of honor. Who baptized you? Well, it was just so-and-so. Well, yeah, I was baptized by Rabbi Jesus. And so, so as not to give rise to that rather prideful opportunity, I think the Lord, uh, for this reason, did not himself baptize any. At any rate, because of the storm brewing in Judea, uh, Judea is a province in the south in which Jerusalem, the holy city, is located. Because of the trouble there, the text says he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So why did he do this? Well, uh, there's going to come a time when he's going to be taken. Uh, he's going to be tried. Ultimately, he will be murdered. Uh, he knew this was his fate. He came to die in our place, but the timing was not yet. His time had not yet come. And, and it looks like the Jewish governing authorities were calling the shots, but they, they really weren't. 
The Lord's Father, the sovereign God, was determining, determining the timetable by which he would be taken and falsely accused and uh, ultimately uh, die. And so the time was not right, and he refused to be taken. Therefore, he was going into Galilee to get away from all this uh, potential opposition. But I think there's another reason. Remember I mentioned last week that the Lord made quite an investment in people's lives? He fed multitudes, but he trained up just a few. Not everyone wanted to be trained up to be his disciples. Everyone wanted their stomachs filled and their um, atrophied limbs to be healed, but not everyone would take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow him. So he invested in the lives of those it was kind of a band of men. And wherever Jesus is, you see this in the Gospels, look around and you'll see the disciples nearby. At this point, they're young. They're following him. He prayed all night before he recruited them. They were rough and tumble guys. He didn't recruit them from the academic world or from the corporate world. Nothing special about them. In fact, they were smelly, rural, Galilean fishermen but they were committed to this rabbi Jesus. And so he invested his life in theirs. But at this point, I'll bet he discerned they couldn't take the heat just yet. They weren't ready just yet to be opposed in a very vicious and orchestrated way by the Jewish religious leadership. And so I think for their benefit, they're in their spiritual infancy. He took them away from Jerusalem, where all this was happening, to go into the country so as to give them a chance to rest and be nurtured, be discipled, and be made ready for what lies ahead. And so uh, he took them away for a while, and the text says he left Judea, and he went away again into Galilee. In verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. That's what the text says. So Ancient Israel was divided into three parts, and the map before you will give you roughly an idea of what we're talking about. You can see Judea is the southernmost province, then right above it is the province in the middle, Samaria, and then in the north, that's Galilee. And uh, Israel, modern-day Israel, is divided in the same way today. Have you heard of the West Bank? You hear that in the news almost daily, a very uh, controversial area. When you hear the West Bank, you should think of Judea and Samaria. That's what the West Bank is. It's ancient Judea and Samaria. So, so that's kind of the lay of the land. Now, verse 5 says he came in Samaria to a city called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Uh, Sikhar uh, was a city located near a place whose location we can determine today. It was called Shechem, or Shechem, if you're from Texas. And it is uh, a, a city in the West Bank. Its modern-day name is Nablus, Nablus. Interestingly, Nablus today is a hotbed of terrorism and terroristic activity. It's sort of a dangerous area. We don't on our trips there, we don't really go to Nablus, ancient Shechem. Anyway, Sikhar was located nearby between mountains, uh, perhaps you've heard of these, Mount Gerizim and Mount Abal. And the text says it's a place where Jacob, one of the patriarchs, once purchased land there 
which he passed on to his family. It's a place where his son Joseph, in particular, was buried. And verse 6 says, and Jacob's well was there. The well perhaps looked something like this, which you can see before you on the the screen. There is a well there today still called Jacob's well. It's very likely it's the very well we are speaking about here in this particular chapter. Little hard to find it today. It's housed in a Greek Orthodox church in the West Bank city of Nablus. But it's very likely the well we're reading about here. And so Jesus being wearied Boy, that stopped me when I read it. Because if I'm correct, Jesus is eternally God. No beginning nor any end. He's the one who came to give us rest. And yet this text indicates he himself is in need of rest. You see, here's this, these two truths we have to hold in tension. He's fully divine and at the same time fully human. With the exception that he committed no sin. And here we're getting a glimpse at the truthfulness and reality of his humanity. He made a journey by foot from Judea, remember, in the south, further north to Samaria. And it was a, a rough journey, hills, ups and downs. And so when he finally arrived, quite a while later, in this place called uh, Sychar, it, it, the text is quite honest, this Jesus was wearied from his journey. So he was sitting by the well, and it was, the text says, about the sixth hour. So what time is that in our uh, time reckoning? Well, we, we don't really know for sure. If it's the time reckoning, if the sixth hour is according to Roman time reckoning, it's about six o'clock in the evening. But if it's according to Jewish time reckoning, it's about noon, midday, the hottest time of the day. You don't have to buy this. I think uh, the sixth hour here is a reference to noon, midday. And I'll show you why in just a second. Most of the women in the Middle East, not just then, even now, are smart enough to come to the well for water early in the morning or early evening at uh, sunset because it gets hot Midday, noon, would be the hottest time of the day. And they, they would come in groups to water their flock and bring water home. They would come together. It was a womanly task. But they would not come during the hottest time of the day. And, and yet we're going to read about a woman who does that very thing. She comes alone. It says this in verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And maybe the whole scene looked something like, like this. She came, a woman, not women. Highly unusual. Why is she alone? Well, I wonder if she was shunned by the other women. I wonder if she was ostracized because it would be highly unusual for her to come alone. And if she was coming early in the morning or later on in the day, 6 p.m., when the sun was going down, she would not be alone. She would be with other women. Here we get the notion that she comes absolutely alone. Why would she do that? It's the most uncomfortable time of day. I think she was obligated to. 
I, I get the impression they did not want her to hang out with them. Why? Did she commit some impropriety? Did she flirt with their husbands? I wonder. Because this fairly severe penalty invoked upon her. She's a social outcast. And she's there during the fever heat of the day, absolutely uh, alone. Well, not entirely. Because there's a Jewish man there ready to meet her. It's the Lord Jesus. Do you realize how unusual that is? For a Jew, first of all, to be in Samaria? Jews would actually go around Samaria for fear of being defiled by this unusual people group. But not this special Jewish man. He went straight into the heart of Samaria. I get the impression he did so because he wanted to go straight to the heart of this social outcast, this solitary Samaritan woman who was without hope. There he was, highly unusual for a Jewish man, Jewish man to be alone at the well with a Samaritan woman. In this day, Jewish men would not have conversation with a woman in public, oftentimes not even their own wife. It just was a no-no, let alone a Samaritan woman. I'm getting the impression that this unique Jesus didn't feel constrained by societal gender and race barriers. He crossed both societal lines because he came to embrace all people, men, women, Jews, Gentiles, even a Samaritan woman. And so he says to her, give me a drink. And so we get a further glimpse into his humanity. He's not only wearied from the journey, he's also thirsty. Can you imagine this? The one who not long ago transformed water to wine allowed himself the experience of thirst. God was tired and thirsty in his humanity, and he's alone in the presence of this shunned Samaritan woman. Why? Verse 8 tells us, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. I think he sent them on that mission. The text doesn't tell us this, but I wonder if it was a difficult discussion. I wonder if he said, you guys go into the city, get us some food. But I think they would have said, what? You can't get kosher food here. This is Samaritan territory. In fact, the rabbis taught that a Jew must not even use the utensils of a Samaritan, again, for fear of defilement. And here, Rabbi Jesus is sending his followers, the disciples, into a Samaritan village somehow to muster up some palatable food. And so he's, they go off, probably wondering, what is he up to? And he's alone with the woman. So verse 9 says, Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, she's amazed by this whole thing, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Well, he knew she was a Samaritan woman. She looked like it. 
And she knew he was a Jewish man because he looked like it. What do you mean looked like it? Just different features, just different ethnicity, different dialect, uh, different cultural trappings, probably different mode of dress. They sized each other up by the category they're in, Samaritan woman, Jewish man. And she was amazed at this, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Why not? Well, there was a group called uh, the Assyrians. They came into this part of the world in 722 BC. They conquered it. And the Assyrians had a very, very effective plan. When they conquered a people group, they carried most of them out of their land and they deposited them in the lands of other people whom they have conquered. This is a way to neutralize the conquered people group. They could never summon up the strength to rebel and revolt because they were plucked out of their familiar territory and dropped in foreign lands. And so when the Assyrians came here and conquered it in 722 BC, that's what they did. They carried not all, but most of the Jews off and dumped them in places all over, and they replaced them with other varied, conquered people groups from all other places in the world. So in this particular area, which we now know is Samaria, you had a lot of racial intermingling. And so the Samaritans were kind of a blended people group. Uh, there was a little Jewish blood in them, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, they were mixed. And not only they were mixed in, in, ter in terms of their bloodline, but they also embraced uh, strange new customs and religious practices. So the Jewish part of them accepted the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures we call the Torah. They accepted the law of Moses, but nothing else, just the law of Moses. And then they added to it religious elements from these other people groups who were brought in. So the Jews in the land were repulsed by this because it's unorthodox. These are idolaters. They've taken part of what we believe in, how dare they, and they have married it to all kinds of pagan customs. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans, and it wasn't just one-sided. The Samaritans returned the favor. They hated the Jews. And not only that, the Samaritans could not worship in Jerusalem where the temple was established. There was a big disagreement between the Jews and the Samaritans, and the Samaritans were not allowed to go to Jerusalem to meet with God and worship. So you know what they did? Um, they constructed their own temple in a place in Samaria called Mount Gerizim. That's what they did. I know they did it because I've been there, as have some of you as we've gone on our trips. We've gone right up on Mount Gerizim where we can see the remnants of the Samaritan temple. And even today, there is there a small community of Samaritans living and worshiping there down to this very day. So these are Samaritan priests, religious leaders, notice, leading a processional right up on Mount Gerizim down to this very day. The people groups, Jews and Samaritans, 
despised one another. And the Jews would avoid going through Samaria, even though we know the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. The Jews would skirt Samaria, take the long way around. But again, not Rabbi Jesus. He went right there into the heart of Samaria. And so we read in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, if you knew this, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you only knew of the gift of God and who it is you're talking to, you would ask for what he has to offer, and he would give you living water. That's the Jordan River. The rabbis consider it living water. Living water is moving water. Water in a spring or river. In contrast to stagnant water as in a cistern. And the rabbis teach, and Rabbi Jesus knew this, living water is the best water. So if you are going to be ritually immersed or baptized, by the way, we didn't invent that. Did you know that? My people were baptizing folks centuries ago. If you go to Israel today, you'll see what we call mikvot, which is a baptistry, able to hold a sufficient volume of water to immerse totally a person from a toe to head. The mode of baptism we use is not a Baptist thing. It's a Bible thing. And so the rabbis in the mikvot said, if they're fed by a spring of water, that's the most favored uh, kind of water in which to be immersed or baptized. Rabbi Jesus, speaking the language of the day, said to this lady, I am a well of living water. If you understood that, all you'd have to do to, is to ask, and I would bequeath it to you. But she's thinking, wait a second. <laughs> there are no rivers or streams here. She's correct. If you go there today, there, there is no living water. There's no moving, running water. The woman knew that. She's thinking, what is this Jewish outsider talking about? How could he offer water, living water, in this place? How could he know of a source of living water that none of the rest of us have ever heard of here? There is no living water in this place. Of course, you know and I know by living water, he's not speaking of H2O. He's speaking of that which can satisfy a parched soul. And he knew, he knew that that was the nature of her soul parched, dry, and empty. He knows she's thirsty spiritually. And so he says, if, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew, you would ask. And if you ask, he would give. That's how it is. She's thirsty spiritually, and yet she's in the presence of the Lord, who is the well of living water. And so he says, if you knew, these are the steps, if you knew, you would ask, 
And if you ask, he, he would give you living water. The woman did not know three things. She did not know, one, who he was. Uh, she did not know, number two, what he had to offer. And she did not know, uh, thirdly, how she could receive what he had to offer. Do you mind me asking, what about you? Do you have answers to those three questions? Who is this Jesus, really? What did he come primarily to offer? How could you get in on it? Those are three important questions. He said to the Samaritan woman, what he might be saying to some even here tonight, if you know who I am, and if you ask for what I have, I would give it to you. Perhaps right here, right now. Perhaps tonight. Perhaps before you leave tonight. And she said to him in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You see, she's just stuck in material realities. And there's a whole spiritual world behind the scenes that most of us do not have eyes to see. She, she didn't have eyes to see. And she noticed that he doesn't have the equipment to, to fulfill what he said. She knows it takes certain things to draw water from this rather deep well. And he has no bucket and he has no rope. And, and the well is is deep and she couldn't understand how this how this Jewish stranger could possibly provide any water without a bucket and a rope let alone bubbling living water but he was speaking all along don't you see of spiritual water and she still is constrained to think only of physical liquid water their eyes have to be open to spiritual realities and so to ours can our eyes see beyond the confines of this material world? There are spiritual realities. There's a dimension beyond what our eyes could see. She's trying to make sense of all that he has said, and what he has said just doesn't make sense. And so she says in verse 12, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? He's the one who gave us this well. And not only that, he drank of it himself and, and his sons and his cattle. And so she asked, how, how can you have water of a better quality than that which our father Jacob provided? She asked, in essence, are you greater than Jacob? What's the answer? Yeah, why didn't he just say that? He doesn't even respond to her question. You know that? He's smart, our Lord. This was a distraction. This is what you call a smokescreen. This is, this is a theological, uh, well, it's just a distraction. And he, he wanted focus on the main issue. And so he answers surprisingly in verse 13, said to her, everyone who drinks of this water. He doesn't mess around with Jacob and all this stuff. Everyone, he says, who drinks of this water will thirst again. So that's her focus, H2O, wet water. Everyone who drinks of it, water from the well. Everyone who, 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 who tries to satisfy their thirst this way, but it won't, it's not going to work, that person will thirst again. Nothing material, he's implying, in this world 
is able to fully and permanently quench the thirst of our soul. Whatever waters of comfort we drink of will never uh, satisfy. We will thirst again. So, so is it fame? Is it, is it fortune? Or is it popularity? Is it pleasure? Is it, is it the accumulation of stuff? Is it success? These are all springs of water uh, by which you and I pause to drink from. And the Lord is essentially saying, but none of these springs can satisfy us permanently. We will thirst again. So, so I ask you, are you thirsty? Even as we sit in each other, in each other's company tonight, are you thirsty? Inside, there's no need to be because Jesus says in verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. What does that mean? It means we will be forever satisfied in knowing that we have been forever rescued from sin, judgment, and the wrath of God. There's no promise of material prosperity, health and wealth, not at all. So how could the Lord say, if you drink of the water which I have, you'll never thirst again? He's talking about our fundamental need. We're subject to the wrath of a holy God who's been offended by our sin. Jesus said, if you drink from the living water which I provide, you will be forever satisfied in assurance of the fact that you are eternally forgiven and have eternally been saved. You ever ask yourself from what? Saved from what? From the wrath of God. It, it, it means we know he has bequeathed to us eternal life and that it will never be forfeited. If you have that experience and conviction, you realize how satisfying that is. It, it means we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Can you imagine that? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Have you, have you tasted that living water? Do you realize how personally satisfying it is? Nothing can separate us from his love. It means that we know we are his always subject to his loving care, no matter what circumstances may befall us. No, we will never thirst again. When one partakes of the living water which Jesus offers, and this water is, uh, is for our parched souls. And so the text says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him Notice, in him, a well of water springing up to eternal life. And this lady, and I hope us, are really amazed by this because she knew of water from the well, which you had to go to. And in order to extract it from a deep well, it, it involved exertion and labor and pulling up water from the bottom of a deep well. It, it was external to you. You, you. you had to go places in, in order to find that that water, but Jesus said, no, 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 no. The water that I give, if you accept it, is the kind that will well up inside you. So you need not look any further. And tapping into it and benefiting from it is not subject to your labor and energy. It's put in you. Well, folks, it's the Spirit of God. 
when one accepts Jesus, he implants his very spirit in our lives. And it's the spirit of God who satisfies uh, the longing of our souls and quenches the thirst of our parched souls. Folks, nobody has ever found satisfaction in the stuff of this world. Did you know that? I happen to know this, so do you, because I read about the rich and famous. Man, uh, many are really messed up. You know, I, I, I look to folks, uh, professional athletes, Hollywood people, who ought to be at the top of their game. They're not. They have the best, you might say, of what the world has to offer, and they have found that they're uh, continuing to thirst. Uh, but the Lord is saying, I could put a source of living water in you so that you'll never thirst again. Uh, the reason why the stuff of this life won't work is that we were created for eternity. Uh, the heart of this poor Samaritan woman longed for uh, eternal assurance. So do our uh, hearts. And the Lord knew she couldn't be satisfied, nor could we buy material things. And he knows she, we, are thirsting for something beyond what the world has to offer. And so we all are just like the woman at the well, seeking for things which cannot satisfy. Come up, John Mark, if you don't mind. Can you hear Jesus uh, saying to you, as he said to this woman, draw from the well that never shall run dry? Can you hear him? I know John Mark has heard and responded. If you knew and if you ask, you would receive. And we're all invited to draw from the well that never shall run dry. There's come a time for most of us here, sometime in the past. And you know, I hope uh, for some even tonight when we ask Jesus to fill our cup with living water so as to quench the thirsting of our soul. Perhaps tonight is the time for some of you to ask Jesus to fill your cup to fill it up, to make you whole. He said, if you know who I am and you can embrace by faith that which I have to offer you, you would ask me and I would give it to you in so many words. Maybe we say to him, fill my cup, Lord. Fill it up. Make me whole. I want to invite you to think about that it's a personal decision perhaps you'll make tonight. Would you think about it as our wonderful John Mark leads us in a special song? Thank you. Like the woman at the well, I was seeking for things that could not satisfy. And then I heard my Savior speaking, draw from my well that never shall run dry. Fill my cup, Lord, I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, 
Fill it up and make me whole. Sing that chorus with me. Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up and make me whole. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up and make me whole. Lord, we thank you for tonight that we can come together to hear the word of God spoken. We pray that our cups have been filled tonight. We thank you for this time that we've had to sit and listen and to contemplate and to think on you. Lord, help us to leave here changed. And we give you the praise, Lord, in everything. Amen.